I wonder whether there's ever been a time in history where people like you and me have found it perhaps so difficult to pay attention. What do I mean? We might, some of us, I include myself, find ourselves doing two, three, four, or even five things all at once. What do I mean? We're eating our food. We're watching TV. We're scrolling down our phone. We might be at the same time talking to somebody in the room with us. We might even be at the same time trying to do our homework or prepare for a presentation or something like that the next day. Do you know what I'm talking about? We live in a day where multitasking has become the real thing that everyone seems to do all the time. And therefore, to actually stop and pause and give attention to one and only one thing can be very, very challenging. The author to the Hebrews says here in verse 1, maybe not with us exactly in mind, but the Holy Spirit who gave these words knows where you and I are right now. He says, therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And saying this, as we come to the word of God, as we come to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to be especially told and reminded and nudged and maybe nagged to put everything else down and give our full undivided attention to this great message. Why? Why? Well, look at the first word of chapter 2. And certainly in my version in the ESV and in the version I've read from this morning, it is the word therefore. And you've heard it said, I'm sure, if you see the word therefore in the Bible, you've got to ask, what's it there for? And you need to therefore look back at the context that comes immediately before that word therefore. And the last word of chapter 1, as you can see, is the word salvation. The chapter preceding ends by talking about those who will inherit salvation. And this is the point. If you and I would inherit salvation, we need to give the closest attention lest we drift away. If you, my friend, would be securely and eternally saved by Almighty God, you need to give your best attention to the word that comes to you today and every day. It's the only message of salvation. What I want to do this morning is take the first part of verse 3 of chapter 2, where the author asks this question. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And I want, for my three points, to emphasize different words 
in that question, working backwards, emphasizing words from the back to the front, and you'll see what I mean as I go along. So my first point then is this. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Such a great salvation. What does salvation mean? Maybe some of you don't know. Maybe it's not a familiar word to some people here. Maybe the children don't know. What does salvation mean? Do you know the answer? Well, it means to be saved It means to be delivered. It means simply to be rescued from danger. And we could think of famous stories in the news where people have been saved and rescued from danger. I'll never forget that great worldwide story of some 11 or 12 years ago. The 33 Chilean miners, you remember, trapped thousands of feet, thousands of meters underground in the desert, in Copiapo, and they were all rescued, weren't they, after many days in the underground cave, brought out uh, to to land and to, to the surface again. They were saved. It was a great salvation of 33 souls. More recently, you may remember a number of Thai footballing boys trapped in a different kind of cave by floods, 11 or 12 of them, with their coach, And they were brought out by divers, weren't they? They were saved. They were rescued. It was a great salvation. Or maybe we can go back much further to the beaches of Dunkirk, to the 300,000-plus Allied troops stranded on those beaches at the mercy of the the bombers. And they they were delivered. They were brought across by the ships and the boats, weren't they? Back to safety. It was a great salvation. Now, let's put ourselves for a moment in the minds of the people reading this letter. Such a great salvation. What was the great salvation that they might have thought of when they heard these words? Remember, these people are, are Hebrews. They are Israelites. They are, they are Jewish people. They look back to their history. And when they hear about salvation, what would they remember? They would remember this, surely. Our great salvation was when we were once slaves in the land of Egypt. We were under the bondage, the cruel slavery of Pharaoh and his taskmasters, and we were under lash and whip and chains, and we were there for long, long years, and our newborn boys were thrown into the river Nile, and our lives were made bitter. It was hard, but God saved us. God saved us by the hand of Moses and Aaron, and by the angels who brought us out and spoke to us at Mount Sinai, and the Red Sea was parted, and the Lord saved us. That was our great salvation. There will never be a greater story of salvation than that. Will there? Can there? And the writer to the Hebrews is saying this. Yes, there is. There is a greater, and there is the very greatest salvation of all. Take your eyes off Moses. Take your eyes off the angels. They have, as it were, compared to Jesus Christ, only a walk on part. He is center stage. He is in the spotlight. He is the savior. His is the salvation. That's where you are to focus your attention. 
Look at Jesus Christ. This is salvation. It's all in him and nowhere else. The author says here, doesn't he, uh, that uh, this salvation was declared at first by the Lord. He says that uh, there in verse 3. What does he mean by that? He means this, that the Son of God himself first proclaimed this salvation. Jesus Entering Galilee, saying, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. The Lord Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. All of these things. He is the one who suffered and went to the cross and died and rose again. He is the one who sent his apostles into this world. And by remarkable miracles referred to here, signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, these are all declaring that here is the great and final salvation that comes. God authenticating it, confirming it, validating it. That's why we have all these miracles, you see. The stilling of the sea. The giving of sight to the blind, the cleansing of the lepers, the raising of the dead, not only carried out by the Lord Jesus, but by those he sends into this world. What's it all saying? What's it all adding up to? Here is such a great salvation. You might ask the question, why is it so great? He doesn't say here, does he, exactly at this very point, why it's so great. Let me just give you four very brief reasons as to why, friends, this salvation is a salvation that you and I need to have. Number one, and these are all mighty reasons why you need to listen, friends. It is salvation from our most powerful and terrifying enemies who hold us in their grip. Sin and death and Satan and hell hold us in their death grip until one who is stronger and mightier than them, the Lord Jesus himself, rescues and delivers us from all those enemies and takes us to righteousness and to life and to God and to heaven. Secondly, understand this, it is a complete, perfect, secure, and everlasting salvation which you and I can never lose once we are saved. Those whom the Lord saves are kept secure and nothing can separate them from the love of God in Christ, not now and not forever. Thirdly, It is salvation for anyone and everyone in the whole world who believes, whoever you are, wherever you are, and whenever you live. If you are a human being who is a sinner and you need to be saved, look to Jesus, whoever you are, and he will be your everlasting and secure Savior. And fourthly, and perhaps best of all, It's a salvation graciously planned and executed and fulfilled and to completion 
by God himself. Without our aid, without our contribution, God freely reconciles us to himself through the blood of his Son. It's all his work. It's such a great salvation. And as we meditate on this, as we think about this, we can really only say with the prophet Micah at the end of his prophecy in chapter 7, verse 18, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because our God delights in steadfast love. Remember that. His love leads to his salvation. His salvation is the outpouring and overflow and the expression of such great love. Such great salvation. That's my first point. But I want to go on and move a little further back to emphasis. And apply this a little bit more to where you and I might be right now. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? What does it mean to neglect something? It means you're careless about it. You make light of it. You don't have much regard for it. When you and I neglect something, it means that it doesn't feature very highly in our priorities. Maybe once it did, but now we don't care nearly as much as we used to. We let it slip away. We used to practice our musical instruments, or whatever it might be. And now it's kind of sitting over in a corner of the room, gathering dust. We've neglected it. We used to go exercising. We used to go to the gym. We used to be quite fit. But now all our sports gear is in the bottom drawer in the spare room. And uh, our running shoes, uh, we don't put them on anymore. Because we've neglected that. And you and I all at various times neglect certain things. Let me just make three obvious points about neglect that you will all immediately recognize in your own life. The first is this. We never make a positive decision to neglect something. I don't think so anyway. We never say to ourselves, starting from next Wednesday, I am going to begin to neglect my diet. doesn't happen, does it? It's never an active decision. It's always something that we passively give in to. We don't think about it. It happens to us rather than us, as it were, actively taking responsibility. That's neglect, isn't it? It it happens to you. You don't think about it. You're not thinking at all. The second thing is this. Patterns of neglect always develop slowly, gradually. It happens little by little, it's insidious, isn't it? We, we don't go from being an active, iron-pumping gym member to a complete couch potato in the space of 24 hours. It might be 24 days, 24 weeks, 24 months. It creeps up on us. And the months go by, and only then do we begin to think to ourselves, you know what, I've neglected my health. 
I've neglected my body. I've neglected my diet. I've neglected whatever it might be. It's always slow. It's always gradual, as well as being something that's passive. Isn't that right? And the third thing is neglect always leads to ruin and to regret in one form or another. If you neglect your home, you neglect your work, you neglect your garden if you have one, you neglect your, your spending budget and your patterns of um, money stewardship, if you neglect your health, if you neglect your education, if you neglect your family, if you neglect your friends and your relationships, if you ne- neglect anything at all where you need to exercise regular responsibility, one day you will wake up and regret it and say, I should not have neglected this. And maybe you and I are aware of something in our lives that we've been and are neglecting even today. But my point is this. It can happen to us all spiritually. Notice how this author is including himself in this. He's not standing there and addressing people from on high and saying, well, you lot are always neglecting things and you need to be corrected. No, he says, therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. You and I are equally prone to neglect this gospel and the whole counsel of God and drift away from it. I may be a preacher. I may be a pastor. That is not any kind of safeguard for me. Neither will it be for your new pastor. I urge you, friends, pray for your pastor every day that he might not drift away from his Savior and his salvation and neglect his own soul and anything that he needs to keep. I say that to you. And again, you see, for you and for me, it's never that we wake up one day and say, I know what, I'm going to neglect my faith. I'm going to neglect my salvation. I'm going to neglect the Bible today. And from now on, no, it always creeps up on us, doesn't it? Slowly, insidiously, gradually, imperceptibly, little by little, we start to uh, let things slip a bit, don't we? The Bible used to be by our bed. First thing we turn to in the morning. But now the Bible is on some shelf somewhere. and We don't look at it first thing. We, we look at our phone and we, we look at the news and we look at our social media. We might glance at the Bible, but even that starts to sort of fade away after a while. We used to be regular, we used to be faithful, we used to have good habits, and we're letting those good habits start to go to waste. Now, I want you to understand something important here as well. I'm not just talking about things you do, routines, activities. You and I can be very regular in all the activities we've ever done, but we're drifting away. We read our Bibles, but our minds are elsewhere. 
We pray, but we mutter them out quickly and get them over and done with. And we think, phew, I've done that now. I've ticked the prayer box for today. Now I can just live my life and do what I want to do. That may well be a symptom of neglect. We're not paying close attention to our souls. And we're not paying even closer attention to the one who feeds our souls. Maybe we're shrugging off warnings. Even like the warning I'm bringing you now or the Lord is bringing through me, if that is his will to you. Maybe we're more concerned about what other people think than what God himself sees in us. Maybe we've become spiritually drowsy and careless. We once knew something about urgency, but that's evaporated. We're drifting. My friend, are you drifting this morning? Are you drifting as a Christian? Are you letting yourself just go gently with the flow and uh, you'd rather just be cool, actually, and, and just do what all your friends want you to do than, than be too serious? People say to you, don't be too intense. Oh, just, just relax a bit. Well, sometimes we need to hear that, don't we? Sometimes we need to hear that. But when it comes to keeping your soul and giving earnest attention to the word of God Hear what the Lord himself says to you right now. That term, drift away, in verse 1, it seems to be a nautical term. It has to do with boats. Imagine a boat which is anchored to the harbour. There's a picture, of course, from Hebrews 6, verse 19. It talks about an anchor of the soul. There's a hymn, isn't there? We have an anchor. That keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll. Fastened to the rock which cannot move. Grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. The point is this. Your soul needs a strong anchor so that your boat is not pulled out and away from the harbor. There are currents. There are waves. There are eddies. There are forces that are trying to pull you and me away from the safe harbor. They come from the world. They, they come from our sinful flesh. They come from the devil. They come from our indwelling sin and rebellion, the sin which clings so closely. And you and I need to know that these forces are real and they are with us daily. And therefore we need to come back to the only one who is himself the anchor that your soul needs, friends. You see, we can't save ourselves. I'm not saying to you this morning, make your own anchor strong. No, the message is surely this. We have an anchor. And his name is Jesus. And he's the only one who is our security and our strength and our salvation. But don't neglect him. Don't neglect his words that feeds you and keeps you. This letter to the Hebrews has a number of strong warnings. This is the first of them. And the situation is this. If you and I fail to pay close and regular attention to the word of God, then little by little we will start to drift away. 
And one day we might wake up to find that our boat has actually broken well away from the harbour. It's being forced out among the rocks, into the whirlpools, even into the crashing waves, into the very middle of the ocean, and there is no way back. There is no way back. Maybe. But because there is a way back now, the author is writing as he is. And saying, therefore, today, today, if you hear this voice, as you'll go on to say in chapter 3, do not harden your hearts and say, well, this is for somebody else here in this congregation. I'm glad that somebody else, so-and-so sitting behind me, is here today. They need this. Let me tell you, friends, I need this every day. I need this and you need this every day. This is written to all of God's people for us to hear. It may be your word today, the word directed to your own soul. Are you neglecting your soul? Are you neglecting your salvation? Don't drift away. Because there is a third point that we have to come to. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Look at verse 2 and the first part of verse 3 again. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? What's the author saying here in the first part of what I've just read in verse 2? He's saying this. In Old Testament Israel, there were laws and there were penalties for breaking those specific laws. Where there is a law, there must be a penalty attached to that law for breaching that law. And there was just retribution, he says, for various sins against God's laws. There was just retribution for murder, for adultery, for theft, for carving and worshipping an idol, for Sabbath breaking. There were laws and penalties attached for, for injuring an unborn child, for cursing your father or your mother if you were a child, for not making sure that your ox was properly tethered so it wouldn't break free and trample and destroy your neighbor's property. And some of these laws were punishable by fines. Some were punishable even by the death penalty. And this is the point he's, he's, he's referring to. If you were found guilty of breaking any of these laws, laws, you could not escape the sentence. The punishment had to be meted out if you broke these laws. But he's now saying this. Something... And someone far greater than the law has now come. This gospel message, he says, is not simply a new law, a new set of commandments, a new set of regulations. No, no, this is someone greater. 
This is Son of God, coming with all the authority of God, who gives himself graciously, freely, wholly, the only, only sacrifice for sin, the only salvation for sinners. And with this great Savior and with this eternal salvation who comes, there comes an eternal and infinite penalty if you and I despise this Savior and this salvation. Where there are laws for a time and a place, there will be punishments if you break those laws in that time and in that place. You break a law in Britain today, you pay a fine, you you go to prison, whatever it might be, there is a penalty, a certain penalty. But when, friends, you and I sin by despising and neglecting and rejecting the Son of God in all his eternity who is the only salvation on offer, then we must be punished with with a punishment that is equivalent to the greatness of the salvation that's on offer. Because this such great salvation is the only salvation on offer. This Jesus Christ is the one mediator between God and man. There is no other. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. If you would come to God at all, you can only come through him. The apostles said, Acts 4 and verse 12, neither is there salvation in anyone else other than this Jesus. For Jesus Christ is the only name under heaven, given among men, by which we must be saved. You just think about that word must for a moment. I've often thought about that. Why does it say must rather than may, could, might, if you would like to be saved? I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. When you and I realize our plight, our predicament, our situation, our lostness without Christ we see that we must be saved. There's no alternative. You imagine being one of those miners trapped underground. And you've been underground for weeks. And the food's running out and the water's running out. And you're fading away and it's dark and you're perishing. And what are you saying then? You're saying, of course, I must be saved. If someone said, what do you mean? We're okay. There might be some other way. Don't need to be saved. He'd say, don't be stupid. We're going to die here. We have to be saved. We must be saved. If you're trapped at sea, you're trapped underground. You must be saved. Friends, if you are under the wrath of God because of your sin and you're facing condemnation and hell and eternal punishment, you will understand when you see that, when I say, you must be saved. And there's only one way to be saved. You see, to walk past Jesus Christ, to neglect him, to say, no, 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 don't, don't want him, don't care, not interested, don't need him, don't want to become a Christian. 
is like imagining you're in your boat again. And this boat's drifted right out into the middle of the ocean. And there's no land to see for miles and miles on the clearest day. And then you hear a helicopter coming overhead and you see it hovering and you see a rope coming down and you see some sort of hook or some sort of basket to, to hold on to, to get into. What do you do? Do you say, oh, I'm going to ignore that. I don't want to be saved. Of course you don't. You hold on for dear life. It's the only way of escape. And Jesus is the only way of escape. Or let me change the picture to what seems to be very much in the mind of the writer at this point. Imagine you're in a burning building. Imagine this beautiful building in the heart of the city of London was on fire. Perish the thought. But imagine that there is, as I imagine there is, there is one fire exit. I can see one over there. Let's say that's the only way out. Let's say that that fire exit is the only way out from this building and the pillars and the galleries are in flames and the the chairs are, are burning and everything's crashing down around you and there is one, one way out. What do you do? Do you walk past it? Do you ignore it? Do you say, oh, I don't want to go that way? That's the only way. Because these words here, how shall we escape, is surely an anticipation of the final day of judgment. It's a day that this writer to the Hebrews has in mind. And in chapter 10, verse 28, he issues another warning. And he again, he compares and contrasts the law of Moses with this great salvation. He says there, chapter 10, verse 28, listen to this. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So if you disregard Moses' law, you will be put to death, he says, If there's two or three people who can testify against you, it's that serious. It's that serious. But it's not nearly as serious as what is to come. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned insulted, violated, abused, blasphemed, mocked the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. Friends, why is the punishment of everlasting fire so great and so terrible? Why? It's because God is so great and God is so majestic and God is so holy and God is to be feared and to outrage God and to insult this God is an act of blasphemy and contempt which deserves this terrible, terrible, everlasting punishment. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, 
And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And friends, if you reject Jesus Christ, you are offending against his holy majesty. It's the greatest offense possible in the whole universe. But there's only one thing you can do, isn't there? Other than be swallowed up by this consuming fire and fall into the hands of the living God, you must be saved. You must be saved. How? How? Do you remember the burning bush that Moses saw? And he looked and he thought, I don't get this. There's this hot raging fire of such tremendous intensity. I can't go anywhere close to it. I'm terrified of this fire. But there's something about this fire I don't see. I see that the bush isn't being consumed. There's a green living bush in the middle of this fire. I don't get this. Do you understand the picture, friends? You and I can be spared the burning. You and I can be spared the the consuming and the devastation of God's holy fire. How? How? Because one has been into that fire. Didn't our Lord Jesus say, Luke chapter 12, I came into this world to kindle a fire and I long for it now to be kindled. He himself has to be sacrificed on the altar of God's wrath. He will be consumed by the wrath of God against sin in my place and in your place if your trust is in him. You remember those those three young friends of Daniel walking around unharmed in the furnace. It's the same picture, isn't it? Why were they not burned? Because one like a son of the gods is in there with them, isn't he? He's taken that fire on himself. You can escape. You must escape. There's only one way to escape. There's only one saviour. There's only one escape. And it's Jesus Christ. So I ask you this morning. Is your boat secure? Is your anchor secure? It's only secure if that anchor is Jesus Christ himself. You don't start by trying to make your own anchor strong and then asking Jesus to help you make that anchor a bit stronger. You need to see that he is that anchor. He is that strength. He is that life. He is that hope. He is that joy. He is that peace. He's that certainty. He's that security that you need in life and in death and in eternity. And that means this as I close, friends, as I started by saying, we must pay more careful attention. Lest we and I drift away. May it be that this morning that God himself has already grabbed and secured and fastened your attention on Jesus Christ who is your life and your salvation and mine, the only salvation that there is on offer.
Flee to him and you will be secure forever. And each day as you wake up, remind yourself that Jesus Christ and Christ alone is your life and your salvation. Such a great salvation. Let's pray together. Gracious, mighty, and living God, we praise and thank you for this great, great power and message and salvation and gospel. It's all of Jesus. It's all in Jesus. It's all from him. It's all to him. And we come to him who is the very radiance of God and the exact imprint of his being the one who has seen the son has seen the father and is in fellowship and union with him and oh lord our god bring every soul that is here into that closer walk communion fellowship with jesus christ our lord and savior now today and always amen